This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. According to the Ethics Commissioner's ruling yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau broke multiple ethic rules when he stayed at the private island of Aga Khan and, of course, uh, the helicopter ride over. Uh, and then we found out that uh, the family had done uh, the same sort of thing as well without him. Uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say about it all. Obviously, my office and I will be behaving in a more uh, uh, proactive way on uh, personal vacations. Uh, But at the same time, I think uh, we can all collectively be reassured that uh, we have mechanisms in our institutions here that uh, hold everyone to account to make sure that everyone follows the rules. All right, here's what uh, Andrew Scheer had to say. Justin Trudeau needs to recognize that when he occupies the Prime Minister's seat, It is not simply enough to comply with the law, something that Justin Trudeau didn't even do in this case, but to be better, to set the highest standard, to answer questions fully, and to tell the truth. And Jagmeet Singh. We have a reality where if you are powerful and you're well-connected, the same rules don't apply. But for everyday Canadians, for everyone else, there are, if there's laws that are broken, there's consequences that are faced. Everyone else has to play within the rules and they're still struggling to get by. All right, uh, let's bring in David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News, uh, of course, covering the story. David, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No, I'm happy to do so. And, you know, I've been pointing out to everybody when I've been talking about this, you said he broke rules. Not really. Mm. He broke a law. He didn't break a memo. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a guideline. He broke a law, and he's the first prime minister in our history to have been found to have broken a law while serving in office. A lot of people said Stephen Harper, Jean Chrétien, Brian Mulroney did bad things, accused them of nefarious activity, but none of them Hmm. were ever found by a competent authority, like an officer of parliament, as the ethics commissioner is, of breaking a law. And that's why that apology is different than things like Kathleen Wynne saying, I'm sorry, we mismanaged the file, or any politician saying, I'm sorry about this, we blew it on this. This is a guy who broke the law, uh, a prime minister who broke the law, a prime minister who broke an ethics law after telling Canadians in 2015, we're going to be holier than thou on ethics issues. We're, mm-hmm. gonna, we're not just going to walk the walk. We're going to be right up there in the clouds on ethics. And he's a leader of the government that has had the prime minister now convicted of breaking ethics laws. And it's not just the prime minister. It's the finance minister as well. He's already been fined for breaking the Conflict of Interest Act, and he is still under investigation for potential additional violations of the law. Not a rule, not a memo, not a guideline. The law. Uh, He could be found to have broken other laws by the next Conflict of Interest Commissioner. So this is a cut above. It's a historic day, and that's what he was uh, saying, kind of saying sorry for. I don't know if it was a full apology, but he accepted the findings. He accepted the fact that he did wrong. Uh, he broke the law, as you mentioned, and it is what it is. That being said, how big a law is it that he broke in the sense that this is about a family vacation? Or is it? He, well, it, it is about a family vacation. There's no question about that. But it, it is a vacation that, that the prime minister of the country received for free mm-hmm. from the, ch- the chairman of a foundation that competes every year for millions of dollars in federal grants. So the prime minister gets a free gift from an organization's head that competes for millions of dollars in federal grants. That, on its face, creates the appearance of a conflict, and that's exactly pretty much what the Conflict of Interest Commissioner said. Trudeau says, as a family friend, what are you talking about? Well, it was a family friend that the commissioner said you hadn't seen for 30 years. You hadn't even said hello to for 30 years. What kind of old family friend do you not even 
say hi to for 30 years until all of a sudden you're the prime minister. How and now this old family friend shows up on your doorstep. You how, know what I'm saying? How is the family friend angle playing there? Uh, simply, uh, as you said, uh, he, well, and as he said in his press conference yesterday, he still views, he still views uh, Aga Khan as a family friend. That being said, is there a difference? Is there a different definition to what a family mm-hmm. friend is in his mind and in, in that of the ethics commissioner? Well, there's a, there's a, Mary Dawson, the ethics commissioner, she basically had to make a ruling, a legal ruling on what is a friend because the Conflict of Interest Act prohibits office holders like the prime minister or any cabinet minister from receiving gifts. You can't take any gifts, period, unless those gifts are from a friend. And so it was up to Dawson then, okay, well, let me test this assertion of yours, prime minister, that this guy, the Aga Khan, was in fact a family friend. And what she determined was he certainly was a family friend of Pierre Trudeau, of the Prime Minister's father. That's, mm-hmm. that's where the friendship started. And that's how Justin Trudeau first met the Aga Khan. But then, as, the, as uh, Commissioner Dawson noted, there was 30 years, I mean three zero years, 30 years, where there was no communication between the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and the Aga Khan. And when the communication started up again, after Trudeau became leader of the Liberal Party, and then heated up when he became Prime Minister, the communication from Trudeau was often on official letterhead that said Prime Minister of Canada. Mm. And so Dotson's saying, this was not two old friends. This was the Prime Minister, the head of a government, talking to someone who needs the government's help for his particular organization. And that's where you're not friends for the purposes of the law, Trudeau may think he's still pals of the Aga Khan, I'm sure he is, but for the purposes of this law, hmm. you weren't friends, and therefore you broke the law. David Aiken is with his chief political correspondent, Global News. David, what about the fact that the wife and family went down without him on one other occasion? <laughs> well, that's kind of just funny. I've been reporting this story for a year, and I didn't know about this trip. It's the first I learned of it. So here's what happened in March break 2016. 2016 March break, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, of course, that's PM's wife, she goes down to the island, the Aga Khan's island, with her kids and with a girlfriend, but without the PM. Has a great time. She comes back from this vacation, and she's become good friends by this time with the Aga Khan's daughter. And so in July of 2016, she sends a text or a message to the daughter saying, we had such a great time in March break. How about we'll bring the whole family, Justin and everybody, for Christmas. We'll come down there for Christmas. And not only will Justin and I come down, we'll bring an MP. Justin's friend Seamus O'Regan, now our Veterans Affairs Minister. And not only will we bring him, we'll bring the President of the Liberal Party of Canada, Anna Ganey, and her husband. We'll bring all of them down. So Sophie basically invites everybody down to the <laughs> the island owned by the Aga Khan. And that's fine. Apparently, according to the PM, it was a standing invitation. But it was Sophie's idea. And I guess like any good husband, Justin Trudeau did not want to disappoint his wife, and off he went. The real wonder is that nobody in the prime minister's office, which is filled with very smart people, ever said, hold on a second, we should just run this one by a lawyer first. Are we sure this is a good idea? That was my next question, David. It's like, how did the prime minister's office let this happen? Well, I mean, there's there's clearly one of three things happen is no one in the prime minister's office figured there'd be a problem with this. That's a little hard to understand. Or someone in the prime minister's office did, in fact, say, wait a minute, you can't do this. You're going to be in violation of some laws. And he said to heck with it. I'm going down there anyways. Or he got a sign off from some advice. We don't know. Uh, we're not. We've been asking those questions for a year now. 
uh, about whether there was some oversight. I have done some access to information request work, getting some documents from bureaucrats, not political staff, but the bureaucrats. And the bureaucrats, when you when you move a prime minister anywhere, there's a you got to move communications gear, you got to have um, you got to have search and rescue planes on standby in Winnipeg just in case something happens. It's a big deal to move a prime minister. And according to the documents I've received through access to information, the bureaucrats, the security people, the RCMP, the DND people, they were not told until December 15th, like literally about 10 days before he went. They didn't know. But clearly Sophie had an inkling back in July. So we'd like to know what happened inside the, the PMO. Was there lawyers on this? That's still unanswered. The, the PMO has not answered those questions for a year now. Uh, can Sophie play the family friend card? Does that count here? Well, the it, it's she she herself is not governed by the Conflict of Interest Act, but as the commissioner noted, even a gift to the wife of an office holder can put the office holder in a conflict of interest. And sure enough, that was a factor here that because Sophie received a gift in the form of this free holiday, that gift then reflects on the office holder, the prime minister. In fact, you know, there's some sketching out. Look at the timing of when we were talking about Aga Khan's official business. It happened around the time gifts were coming back and forth. It is tremendously problematic, more problematic than I think any of us thought when we first started reporting this story. It's a big problem. What happens when just the family flies there without the prime minister? Same, so, same sort of pomp and circumstance as far as security and such. I mean, the same rules would apply, would they not? We don't know that definitively, but we do know, because you see them around town, uh, the, the uh, Trudeau family. Uh, you know, Sophie certainly has her own security details, so do the kids. Uh, and it would be up to the RCMP to make some assessment on how secure they thought the Aga Khan's private island was. Presumably it's, it's more secure than most places. But that is, uh, you know, whenever we try to ask the RCMP about security arrangements, uh, their answer, probably an appropriate one, is we're not going to tell you about the security arrangements we make for the PM or any other VIPs. So how will this play out? Is this a 24-hour news cycle, or does this, does this come back to bite them? It's the worst possible timing for the Liberals, and I'll tell you why. Because right now, everybody's gathering, going home for Christmas, gathering around for Christmas time with their families. And this, this story, is the last big political story you're going to hear in 2017. So when people get sitting around the table for Christmas, and they're talking any politics, the last thing that people have heard about, oh yeah, Justin Trudeau, he, he broke the law. He got in trouble on this ethics thing. And wasn't his finance minister also in trouble? That's right. The prime minister, the finance minister. And come to think of it, the last time the Liberals lost government, wasn't it because of ethics issues, sponsorship, and all that sort of thing? Mm. That is the conversation about politics that is going to happen over the next couple of weeks. And the Liberals have no way to change the channel until Trudeau goes out on a cross-country town hall tour in January. The Liberals need to establish their brand again as champions of the middle class. But right now, it ain't very much of a middle class thing to do. In the last three years, the Trudeaus, either with or without Justin, have been down there three times to the billionaire philanthropist island. In his first uh, Christmas as prime minister, he went to St. Kitts with an entourage of how many? Cost us a couple of hundred thousand dollars in security and other support. So this year, you know what he's doing? He's trying to be middle class. He's trying to be like me and you, Scott. Yes, he's staying in <laughs> Canada. He's going, not going anywhere. Then going out he's west, go, isn't he? Yeah. He's going to the Rockies. He's, yeah. going to, he's got a cabin in the Rockies, and then he's going to spend a week uh, hanging around uh, Ottawa. He's got a, the Prime Minister has a nice official residence up in Harrington Lake in the Gatineau's, and it's beautiful. Go up there. It's lovely. So he's staying in Canada. Messages: stay here. 
you avoid political trouble. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, championing for the middle class during the last election. Uh, now, of course, you've got people like Jagmeet Singh coming into the uh, into the mix, and of mm-hmm. course, uh, rags to riches story. This sort of thing is, and, and especially with the uh, allegations and, and charges, as you mentioned, against uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Uh, do you think he's going to have to try to put a cap on this image that he really is an elitist guy and not a middle classer? I think this is the this is the central problem for the liberals. Um, the thing the liberals have going for them at this point is you, you can buy in the, the actually let me back up a bit. We asked the prime minister when I say we, Vashi Capellos, my colleague here, for her show, the West Block on Global on Sunday, had a year-end interview with the PM on Monday before all this stuff happened with his ethics file, and she asked him about Bill Morneau and the ethics issues. And one of his things was Canadians don't care about this. Canadians care about the jobs we've created. And sure enough, unemployment is under 6%, uh, which is great. It's the lowest in 10 years. The economy's doing pretty well. Some danger signs ahead if NAFTA all goes to heck. You know, we, we don't know where we're going to be. But the, the Liberals think, hey, we're the economy. We're doing great. Canadians care about that. They don't care about ethics. I think that if the opposition sustains these things, they now have Trudeau in black and white broke the law on ethics. The finance minister is still in trouble or in peril on more ethics violations. Uh, if any other one of them, the Veterans Affairs Minister, Kent Hare, has been saying, sorry, the former Veterans Affairs Minister, now Sport and Disabilities Minister, Kent Hare, he's been saying dumb things to disabled people. Um, there's some issues that, you know, for the next year, the Liberals are going to have to worry about their brand, the brand being we're the middle class guys. David, one last question, then I'll let you go. I know you're busy. Uh, what about the fact he apologized? He came right out and said, I'm sorry, I blew it. We'll try to do better. We're going to be more proactive, uh, as opposed to just denying or, or bashing the credibility of those that accused him. Be- There's whether, a rule- whether you like his policy or not, I'm thinking that's why people like this guy. Yeah, oh, sure. He'll get some credit for that. And when he goes on the town hall tour and people criticize him for this. If they do that, he'll get some credit for that. But it's up to us pundits, I guess, to point this out. Yeah. It says right in the Conflict of Interest Act, and you know, an idiot like me can read this, you can't take a private aircraft, full yeah. stop. And he took a private aircraft. He's known for a year the day was going to come. He's going to have to apologize for taking that private aircraft. Why didn't he do it back in January? Yeah. Why didn't he do it in March? Why didn't he do it two weeks ago? Why did it have to take a report from the Conflict of Interest Commissioners to say, yep, sorry, buddy, uh, you, you did it, you, you were wrong. Why did it take that? Why couldn't he apologize in this when it was apparent to everybody involved that he blew it on that one? Well said. David Aiken is with us, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight to hear more on this. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, no problem, Scott. Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you as well. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We obviously have heard the outcome of the case, uh, the Laura Babcock murder trace uh, case. Dellen Millard, Mark Smitch, of course, charged again and convicted uh, in the murder of uh, Laura Babcock, uh, in addition to, of course, uh, Tim Bosma. And then he is on his way to stand trial for the murder of his father. We remember in the second case uh, regarding the Laura Babcock murder trial that uh, Dylan Millard actually represented himself. Turns out it is not going to be the case uh, third time around. He will uh, use the services of a lawyer as well, also bring in the services of a lawyer in regard to his sentencing case, which is coming up, his sentencing, uh, sentencing appearance, um, which could see him serving... Uh, consecutive sentences 
as opposed to the same time concurrently. To talk more about all of this, Todd White is with us, criminal lawyer, barrister in Toronto, on the line now. Todd, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Thank you. Nice to be here. So what does it say, the fact that uh, he has now retained the services of a lawyer, that being Dylan Millard? Um, he did the right thing, I think. I think it's, uh, there's an expression that if you, if you act for yourself, you have a fool for a client. You should never be your own lawyer, even if you're a lawyer. Um, but he's doing a sentencing hearing, and he's also facing another murder trial. Um, and it's always a good idea to have a, a lawyer, especially a, a lawyer as good as Ravin Pillay. He's a very good lawyer. So what does this mean for Millard personally? And I know we can't get inside his mind, and nor do we probably want to, but um, does he look at this as a failure? How do you justify doing it once and not a third, or sorry, doing it a second time, not a third? Um, well, he, he, there's a, it's a bit complicated. He, he's been convicted now of a number of murders. Um, he's not looking at consecutive life sentences. Um, that doesn't exist in law in Canada. Only in America can you get a consecutive life sentence. In Canada, we understand you only have one life to, to give. So. Right. Uh, but what he's looking at uh, under the, the new criminal code provision is uh, how long his parole ineligibility will be. Uh, in Canada, for the last 150 years, it used to be a maximum of 25 years you had to serve before you could even apply for parole. Right. Now, if, given that he's been convicted of being a serial killer, um, killing a number of people, um, his ineligibility, ineligibility for parole can be raised to up to 50 years. And that's what the hearing in February will be about. So this is uh, fascinating. So uh, obviously a new addition to the criminal, co- criminal code, which uh, will, we will see enacted in uh, maybe in the Millard case, but certainly didn't in the Paul Bernardo case, for example. Correct. And, and it was something that uh, the Harper government did just to appear to be tough on crime. There's absolutely no use whatsoever for this provision in the criminal code. People who are convicted of multiple murders, uh, like Paul Bernardo, um, the chances of them ever, ever being released are next to zero. So it's not really necessary. That being said, he certainly can apply for parole after 25 years, correct? Yes. But so the chances of him ever getting parole are probably zero percent. Um, and, and I'll ask you, well, I'll, I'll ask you right now, how does the dangerous offender... Uh, um, uh, signification. Uh, uh, how is the um, dangerous offender uh, significant in this scenario? Why is that not used in Millard's case? It's not necessary. A, a dangerous offender just means that someone will be kept in custody until they're deemed sort of you know legally, and factually, and mentally capable of entering society. Um, it's discretionary, um, but it has no application to him because he's serving a life sentence. He's there for the rest of his life. His his, his sentence expires when he dies. So your point is, uh, at the end of the day, nobody's going to let these people out after 25 years, so this is all a moot point. It, it probably is, um, which raises the other question, is, is why is the Crown prosecuting him on the murder of his father? Because uh, it seems silly, because he's you know, already sentenced to two or three life sentences already. What's the point? Well, this is a, a special case. Normally, the Crown Attorney's Office would withdraw or stay other murder charges when someone's been convicted. But in this case, um, when his father was found to have committed suicide, uh, he inherited his father's estate, Mm -hmm. and it was quite sizable. And the law in Canada is that you can't profit from your own crimes, so they want to get a conviction for murder or manslaughter so that he can't inherit his father's estate. And right now his father's estate is being frozen. 
Uh, you were saying no real use uh, for consecutive sentences. What about from the victim's family perspective? Because, you know, even, you know, uh, Paul Bernardo, although he will not get out on parole, will, will certainly jump through the hoops and make the family jump through the hoops and, of course, appear and tell the story over and over again, reopening wounds. Um, isn't that what the whole purpose of all of this is all about? It's less about how long your life is in consecutive life sentences. The point is, now instead of dragging the family through this uh, every year after 25 years, like the French and Mahaffey families are going through, um, now they don't have to do it for 50 years. I mean, that's a huge advantage to the victims' families, is it not? Well, I, I don't think so. The families don't have to be involved. Um, they can do it. No, but if they're interested, right. they're, if they're interested in keeping this person behind bars, I mean, they've got to be in, emotionally and and physically involved again in some way. Is that not reopening wounds? I mean, I can certainly see this from a family standpoint. Well, then don't reopen the wounds. It's the only advice I'd give them. Uh, you know, the, the family involvement they're entitled to to be involved, but it's not determinative of, of what's going to happen. And parole boards in this country are are pretty good at what they do. And, uh, you know, a serial killer uh, like Paul Bernardo um, is never going to be released. So they don't really have to reopen the wounds. Someone can speak on their behalf, too. Uh, that being said, is that not why this law was uh, changed, was so that families would not have to go through this uh, after 25 years? I, I think it was just um, Prime Minister Harper's way of appearing to be tough on crime. You know, 25 years is a long time. I don't know. I've talked to a lot of families that have had to go through this, Todd, and it sounds like, you know, I don't think it's as easy as just saying, well, if you don't want to get involved, don't get involved. I think there's a lot more emotion uh, involved in this than, than, than you're, you're suggesting. And, and I would say that that would be the reason for all of this is to keep the family from reliving this all over again. Well, it, it may well be a, a good reason for it, but, you know, adding another 25 years adds another 25 years. Um, you know, so 50 years later, they have to become involved once they put it all behind them. So maybe worse. Or it would be a moot point because someone's dead and no one cares anymore. That's true. That's very true. So the, in that respect, you have saved the family the anguish of having to go through this all the time. Because as we've heard, and I mean, I've had uh, Tim Danson on talking about this in regard to the, the French and Mahaffey families, that even though he's well prepared for this uh, for this day 25 years ago, uh, it, it's still emotionally charging for the families. That's true. That's very true. So um, in regard to Millard uh, and the sentencing, uh, was it this because the sentencing uh, uh, is a choice of being concurrent or consecutive, that's why he feels he has to bring the lawyer into the sentencing portion of the Babcock trial? Yes. Um, it's a new provision of the criminal code that allows uh, for the a judge at the judge's discretion to raise the parole ineligibility to up to 50 years. And that will be decided by the judge. It's automatically uh, life imprisonment until you die and a minimum of 25 years before you can apply. Now they can raise it to 30, 35, 40, 50. Why do you think that at this point Millard decided, you know, this is getting complicated, I, I'm going to need somebody in for this part of it? Uh, well, first of all, Justice Code suggested that he do. Yeah. Um, and, there, and there may well be some constitutional arguments as to whether or not this provision of the criminal code is even legal um, to have mandatory minimum uh, parole and eligibility for 50 years. Um, so that may be a consideration that his lawyer will want to take into account. 
Do you think Millard is thinking now, and again, we can't get in his head, that, man, maybe I should have had a lawyer the, uh, for this past case? Well, not what I read in the press, and I think the press covered it pretty well. He seemed to enjoy yeah. uh, being his own lawyer and get, getting to cross-examine witnesses directly. If none of this matters, why bring in an expert now, then? Because we're, the new provisions of the criminal code yeah. require it. Yeah. But do you think that means anything to him, knowing he's stuck for life in prison anyway? No, I mean, again, and, you know, we'll have to wait and see. He may have an appeal from this conviction. That's one of the reasons that people are considering as well. There may have been some errors in law in this trial with him unrepresented. And so there may have to be, you know, may have to go to the Court of Appeal and have the appeal court review it. Um, But it's smart that he has a lawyer, so Mm -hmm. he can't complain. Uh, After the first trial, he suggested a mistrial uh, because of the way... um, uh, Smitch's uh, attorney had addressed the jury. Uh, the judge quickly uh, dismissed that. I- is that it as far as a mistrial? or No, there, there, there wasn't a mistrial. A mistrial is granted by the trial judge um, for something that's uh, prejudicial that can't be sorted out by the trial judge in instructions, and that application was dismissed. So the trial went on and he was found guilty. It may be something to argue on appeal, um, but usually those arguments aren't very successful. Right. Uh, do you think any of these will be appealed? Do you think this will be appealed? Um, knowing this accused person, I'm sure it will be. He seems to challenge everything as it goes. Uh, how will the final, I'm assuming the final trial, meaning that for uh, Millard's father, how will that be different than the other two? The fact that we've already been through this, is it, can any part of this be expedited? Obviously, uh, as you suggested, there, there there's reasoning for doing this even a third time. Um, but is there anything you can learn from the first two that can expedite the third? No, in fact, the, the, the first two trials can't even be mentioned. Yeah, same thing? Trial. Same thing. It's, yeah. it's a brand new uh a murder victim, which is his father. Right. Um, so they'll have to call all different evidence to prove that, and that's going to be. It may, it may be. I don't mean. I know. The, I don't know the case to meet, but it could be tough for the crown because it was originally deemed to be a suicide. Mm. So nothing from uh, the Babcock or the Bosma case can be used in court uh, against uh, Millard in the uh, murder of his father, Un- unless the the crown makes an application to call what is what is called similar fact evidence right. to show that he has a certain propensity that's not just bad character, but this guy is a serial murderer who had a motive to kill his father for the inheritance and to show that he's committed other murders in a similar or gruesome way. Uh, as you mentioned, this uh, case was initially closed and once deemed a suicide. How big or uh, how much of a burden is on the Crown to prove otherwise? How difficult is that to overturn or, or change this? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, a coroner signing off that it was a suicide um, is not a, a legal burden of proof that's been met, so it's not as if he's been exonerated. Um, but his, his lawyers will certainly argue that there might be a reasonable doubt as to whether it's murder or suicide if some pathologist somewhere determined that it was suicide. But again, I'm sure that once they found out he was a serial murderer, they went and got all the records back and they may have exhumed the body to determine whether, in fact, it was suicide. And they've obviously determined that it wasn't suicide. Um, surprised that this wasn't caught the first time when they did deem it a suicide. Or, or is it because there's no reason to suspect this, there's no history, so Correct. why would you presume, presume elsewise? It, it, Paul Bernardo is a perfect example. No one suspected that he was a serial killer or a murderer or mm. the Scarborough rapist until uh, you know, his, his ex-wife gave a DNA sample. And that's how they got him. He was mm. linked through the, when she, he raped uh, 
his wife, um, his DNA matched that of the Scarborough rapist. That's hmm. how it all started. So uh, do you think he will, uh, meaning Dellen Millard, will receive uh, consecutive sentencing in this? Do you think this will, and will this be the first time that this uh, change in the law has been used? I, I can't, I tried to do some research when I first got the call this afternoon, but I, I haven't seen this case uh, or anyone use this yet. Right. Um, but it's certainly in the, in the criminal code and justice code, no pun intended, mm. um, certainly considering it. Um, and I think it's a perfect case for it. Uh, if something goes wrong, does that that doesn't change anything? It just uh, it's either consecutive or concurrent. It, it can't damage the Correct. the outcome of the trial at all, can Correct. it? No. Uh, Smitch's lawyer says this is unconstitutional. How how can he arrive at that conclusion? Um, Section seven of the of the Charter of Rights uh, talks about you know the you know fair treatment of an accused and violations of fundamental pr- principles of law. Case law over the past hundred and fifty years has said that. You know, the parole ineligibility of 25 years um, is harsh, but not unconstitutional. And so if they're going to, now that the Harbour government has raised it uh, to up to 50 years, that may be the challenge. Hmm. So will, treatment. will this be a case that determines whether this will ever be used again, whether it stands up or doesn't? It could, but, it, but you never know. It depends. Things aren't finally determined until they're determined by the Supreme Court of Canada. And, you know, he may get a a 50-year parole and eligibility and not appeal that decision. So if the Supreme Court of Canada may not get to decide this case for 5, 10, 15 years. Hmm. Uh, so again, uh, moving forward, we won't know until this is decided, really. Correct. Todd, uh, Todd White has been with us, criminal lawyer, barrister in Toronto. Todd, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, a business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Got a couple of things I want to throw around with him. Uh, obviously, the situation that is happening with the former Stelco lands. And what is the future of Canadian malls? Would you love to move into one? You know, sometime I think my daughter and my wife would. Just leave Kurt and I in the house. They'll, uh, they'll just take up residence at their favorite mall. Why not? Maybe it's the future. Uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, see what his thoughts are. Marvin, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Now, my pleasure. Remember, Scott, denial is a river in Egypt. <laughs> That's, well, again, it depends who you ask. Okay. Uh, all right, let's go uh, first to the Stelco uh, right. situation. Uh, a lot of people may have a, a hard time understanding what this is all about, uh, but when you say that something is of value uh, to the tune of $108,000 per acre, and then you say all of a sudden now it's only worth $100 an acre, that is something that people can relate to. Uh, how does this happen? Mm-hmm. So there's a wonderful group of people called MPAC, the Municipal Property Assessment Corporation, arm's length from the government, so it's not the provincial government, it's not the municipal government, whose job it is to assess the value of your property. You might remember back in 2000 and 2001, we moved from historical value on your property to what's called actual value assessment. So as homes sell in your neighborhood, if all of a sudden you notice that your prices are going up, then it's a pretty good chance the next time your property is assessed, you're going to see the value of your property go up to match what's been happening in the neighborhood, or vice versa. 
if properties in your area have been selling for less, then expect your evaluation to, to go down. And then it's based on these valuations that your municipal property taxes are based. Uh, we still have that kind of a system. So there's a rate multiplied by the value of your home, and boom, there's your property taxes. Ever since 2000, which is really the merger of the, of the city, uh, Stelco has been very aggressive on its property taxes. It began by saying, look, we have some buildings here that we're really not using. Uh, why are you taxing us at the rate as if it was an operating plant? So they've been appealing these assessments over time. Occasionally they would lose, and they were told, well, as long as there's a building standing, you're still going to pay as if it's a plant. So then Stelco began to demolish buildings. That's why you have nearly... 300 acres of Stelco land that is just sitting fallow. There's nothing going on because they've been very aggressive at demolishing old buildings, warehouses, let's call them, or storage sheds mm -hmm. that they no longer need. Now, the last time this land was assessed, you're absolutely right, this is three years ago, it was assessed at $108,000 an acre. Then we enter into the creditor protection process, and it was during that time that the court had to determine what the value of the company's assets were, and it received reports from somebody called a monitor. This was an independent person who was overseeing the process to indicate to the judge that they weren't sure the land was worth all that much on an as-is basis, that they had conducted some preliminary tests and had found pollution. And again, that doesn't really shock anybody. Mm -hmm. More than 100 years of steelmaking bound to have put something in the soil somewhere along the line. And so the judge was quite concerned that they might not be able to get much of a value for this land. That's really when the province stepped in to create this thing called Landco. That's an independently owned company that's now going to own all of the Stelco land. The new Stelco, run by Bedrock, is going to lease back just that part it wants. The uh, Bedrock has pledged $80 million towards remediation of the land. The province has put in $70 million to remediate the land so that it then can be sold. And remember, when they sell it, the proceeds of what they sell will go into the pension fund. Right. But the, everyone seems to be convinced that at the moment, on an as-is basis, remember, actual value assessment, that given the amount of pollution, the land isn't really worth anything, just a token amount of $100 an hour, $100 not an hour, $100 an acre, and as such, uh, the property tax bill has been reduced. Now, where this affects the city of Hamilton, of course, is that it yeah, had lost tax revenue. Yeah, yeah, it had planned on collecting nearly $2 million in property taxes. Whether it was from Stelco in 2018 or from Landco in 2018, and what the councillors are seem to be alleging is, look, since the province now is holding the land, or this Landco is holding this land, uh, wouldn't it be nice for the province if all of a sudden the tax bill went away? So they're suggesting there was some sort of collusion between the province and the property assessment people to bring the value of the land down. No one doubts that when remediation is finished, the land will go back up in value. But why now? Why did this happen? And, and I have to say, in fairness, my experiences with MPAC, this property assessment people, is that they truly do act at arm's length, and they are not willing to play ball either with the municipal government or a provincial government. I think it's simply that they learn things during this uh, creditor protection process that led them to say, wow, we've really got the wrong value on these lands, and they've decided to change them. Like all things... What, have they, what have they learned, Marvin, just that it was more polluted than they thought yes. it was? Because that's the only thing that, uh, like, what else would have changed? That, that's it. That the land that they thought was vacant but could be flipped over and used for commercial purposes was more, more polluted than they thought, and therefore, uh, until remediation is done, it's just not worth the same. Now, look, all assessments can be appealed. 
Uh, normally, people <laughs> normally people appeal them because they think your property is assessed at too high a value. There's no way my house is worth a half million dollars. Go back and take another look. And sometimes you win. In this case, I wouldn't blame the city council at all for appealing to MPAC and saying, wait a minute here, it's got to be worth more than $100 an acre. Even if it's only worth $25,000 an acre, we get that. Okay, it's not worth 100 it's worth 25 But to take it from 100000 to $100 an acre, that's really quite a dramatic crash. So, and how do you justify that? Other than I'm just trying to lowball and see what we can get when, when, when this is debated. But at the end of the day, no matter how polluted it is, land on the waterfront that's prime industrial land is not going down. How do you go from 108 to 100? Well, and that's, and again... 108,000 to yeah, 100. Right. And, that, and in fairness, that's what you have to find out in an appeal process. It seems quite dramatic. Now, just again, to be for a footnote here... There is still an assessment outstanding for 2017 in which Bedrock is suggesting, well, you had it wrong last year and the year before. We're owed refunds, and who has to pay those refunds? It's not the province. It would be the city who suddenly has to dip into this year's tax revenue to pay last year's refund. So how how will this affect that decision for 2017? It, it could be huge. I mean, as it stands now, this is why I think you have to appeal it. If you leave this be, then you really set up grounds for assessments or reassessments going back to 17, 16, 15. Suddenly it's not a $2 million question, it's an $8 million question or a $10 million question. So are all of these appeals on hold until this is appealed? Or sorry, are all these other cases on hold until this appeal is, is heard? Well, there's a, there's a current appeal outstanding for 2017. I think if I was a city, I would join in that and say, wait a minute, I disagree with that, and this also has an impact on 2018. The bottom line is, for a little while anyway, the city will not be collecting the money at once until this gets settled. But I would suggest join in there as a party of interest and, and at least try to make your case that the property is worth a lot more than $100 an acre. Or, here's the other thing the city has said, well, if that's all it's worth, sell it to us. Yeah, exactly. If that's, that's all. We'll take 300 acres at 100 bucks yeah. an acre. That's $30,000. And then you can remediate it, and we'll do it. So I, I, there is a little grandstanding here going back and forth. That's why you need to get into this appeal process. Uh, so uh, that being said, are we assuming that if you lower this value, devalue the land this way, someone's obviously going to pick it up at a bargain basement price, and then it's up to them to totally uh, refurbish this land? No. So the, the question is, is this reevaluation done strictly to help out LANCO, this provincial assessment group? And we don't know who's running LANCO at this point, so that they don't have to pay many taxes taxes until remediation. So no one's planning to sell this land at this moment. It still belongs to Lanco, and Lanco's been given a mandate that within the next decade, they need to A, remediate, and B, sell. And remember, when they do sell, the proceeds of the selling go into the retirees' account. So yeah. the retirees want this land to be as clean as possible, not to get $100,000 an acre, but maybe 200000 or $300,000 an acre. So there's pressure to remediate. The question is, while they are remediating, has something happened to artificially lower the price of the land so the land code doesn't have to pay property taxes during this uh, one to ten year period? You know, I had wondered all along in an article I did with Mark McNeil uh, where we talked about this, you know, I had wondered if the province might ask for some dispensation or say to the city, look, it's in your long-term interest to get this land back into productive use, so let's help us out a little bit on the taxes, the carrying cost for the time being, and then look down the road, look at all the great things that can happen. Clearly, there's a little jurisdictional dispute going on here, and I think everyone needs to jump into this to, to sort it out. Did MPAC not anticipate this revolt? Could they not see this coming? <laughs> I mean, my goodness, you know, when they mailed that letter off, did they sit there and giggle? I mean, my, how can you not? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm laughing because 
sometimes this is the law of unintended consequences. You know, you've been doing a series of of reviews of tax bills for one complainant, this is in the case of Stelco or U.S. Steel Canada, and you're going through that, not really thinking about who else it might affect, in this case the, the city. Usually a city does not pay any attention when MPAC does its work because they win some, they lose some. In other words, if, if we think of it in terms of houses, some houses go up in value, some come down in value, the net effect kinds of washes out. I just don't think MPAC realized that the size of this impact and that would be enough to catch the city of Hamilton. Just again, in fairness, now the city of Hamilton is a billion-dollar budget. Two million dollars in a billion-dollar budget isn't really all that much. But if you think of it as another way of shifting the tax base from the industrial sector to the residential sector, there's roughly there's roughly uh, 250,000 homes in Hamilton. If you lose $2 million from the industrial side, you have to make it up on the housing side. You've got to add $8 to everybody's tax bill. So what will, in your mind, this land be used for eventually? It won't be residential. It'll be industrial, no. will it not? No. Well, and, and there's, there's two reasons for it being industrial, or let's use another word, commercial in mm-hmm. some way, because you've still got a fully operating steel company in DeFasco as the next-door neighbor. Yep. I don't think anyone's going to want to live there. My fear, my fear is that in this world of commercial is there's something called warehouses and you can take and build these big great big warehouses because you're not going to put a foundation or go down. You can put them on relatively contaminated soil, but they don't create many jobs and they don't create a lot of value. What I'd rather see are are processing plants of some kind. Let's say a food processing plant where we take I don't know, we take grain and turn it into grain oils of some different kinds, corn oils, what have you, or we have a tomato processing plant, or we have some other maybe clean manufacturing, people making microchips or something. A lot of, a lot of activity, a lot of employment, high value added. I'd love to see that. Clearly, though, for those kinds of companies, the, the land's got to be brought up to a better standard. You can't be doing food processing on heavily contaminated land. We, uh, apparently, we all want to live in shopping malls now, so why wouldn't we want to leave, live near a steel plant? I mean, okay, let's change topics here. This is what we're originally supposed to talk about. I, uh, I just, ask your wife. If you're not clear, <laughs> ask your wife and daughter about the steel plant. I think they'll tell you. All right. You might have a point there. So how will shopping malls introduce residency into their properties? How, what's this going to look like? So, I mean, well, here, are, are here, we going to see strip malls? Are we going to see stores, uh, people sitting in living rooms now as opposed to mannequins? Yeah. So here's, here's the shocker. It's already begun to happen. Uh, it, it, if you take a big city like Toronto or even here in Hamilton with some of the new condo developments, who really wants to live on the first floor of a condo? Mm. Anyone can stare into your building, maybe even on the second floor. So most condo projects in places like Toronto and now more in Hamilton, they're already planning to put retail down on the first level. So if I'm a mall that's sitting relatively empty, and and I'm not going to use a local example, we'll just say I'm an American mall sitting relatively empty, one option is to demolish part of the mall and build a condo, uh, uh, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 stories up. The first floor is still going to have your retail on it, Hmm. but I've got the people living above it. I've already got a lot of space for cars, so it's easy to work out the parking. I can put in some amenities, but maybe there's already a gym located at that mall. There's already restaurants at that mall. And if if we happen to be near, say, a transportation hub, boy, that's going to work out really well. 
Now, in the United States, which has really had a bigger problem with empty malls than Canada, just to put make the difference, you have complete malls, complete malls sitting empty in the United States. We don't have that in Canada. Wow. We might have an anchor store that's sitting empty and maybe sitting empty for a year or two, but we don't have the entire mall as a ghost town. So what have they been doing in the States to try to bring this back? One option, rather than housing, is to partner on a medical facility. Let's not build a new hospital. Let's take the mall and make it a medical facility. We'll have clinics and walk-in centers and x-rays, what have you. Or let's partner with the city, and if you need a new library, let's put the library in that mall space. Or let's put uh, a fire hall in that mall space. University college, let's talk about that. Uh, You're you're probably not aware of this, but um, in Toronto, one of the major... Uh, movie chains had a theater that they were hoping to redo, turn into more of a multiplex, but it was right downtown. It was expensive land, so they partnered with Ryerson. During the day, the movie theater is actually lecture halls. At night, they turn it back into a movie theater. That's a great idea. And they both got some use out of it at a cheaper cost than they'd have to do independently. So these kinds of partnerships to repurpose the space, and keep in mind, if I have a partially full mall, not a completely empty mall, but a partially full mall, what do I want to do? I need to have anchor tenants who bring people to the mall. Now, whether they live there, whether they, you know, they swim there, <laughs> whether they uh, 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 go to the library there, whether they go to the hospital there, whatever that brings volumes of people in, it works just the same way, and that's where this innovation is going to go. What does that say about the health of retail? Well, in the United States, and again, I have to make the distinction, there is absolutely no doubt about it. The United States overbuilt retail. There is something like 120 square feet of retail for every man, woman, and child in the United States. In Canada, that number is more like 40 square feet of retail. Uh, But there's just no doubt about it that America overbuilt. And and now they're paying the consequence by having half-full malls, or in some cases, fully empty malls. Not quite sure the same is true here in Canada. Uh, we, we are seeing some struggles, especially with First Target going, and now Sears going. These are both fairly large retailing operations in terms of the space they occupy in a mall. They're not going to be easy to replace that space. We've seen some growth in other people, so Shoppers Drug Mart, um, Dollarama, Mark's Work Warehouse, uh, uh, some of those people have taken up some of that, and we've almost reabsorbed all the Target space, and now suddenly in, in late January, early February, we're going to get all the Sears space. That's going to be hard for us to quickly absorb, but we're nowhere near in the shape that they are in the United States. Uh, why not just sell the land to a developer and let them do it? Would this actually be the shopping mall people that are running this? Uh, so you say shopping mall people. So these shopping mall people are actually real estate holding companies here in Canada the same way. Cadillac, Fairview right. is a great example. Uh, and, and that's why they are open to alternative uses. Rather than sell it, if they really felt the mall had no future, they would simply tear it down and build the housing themselves. They're mm. quite capable of doing that. And I think in some urban areas, finding this mixed use, combining a and B, or, or combining an office tower. That would be another thing I could do. If you look downtown at Jackson Square, it's hard to think of Jackson Square without also thinking of the office towers there mm-hmm. and the great news that happened this year that Hamilton Health Sciences and IBM yeah. were taking, I think it was six or seven floors in the former Stelco building, You know, bringing people back downtown. Anything you can do to bring people, keep these malls alive. 
Uh, what about big box stores? Is this the end of them? Will they be the first ones on the target? How do they fit into this? Because they seem to me as being a use a waste of uh, use of space. <laughs> so we have to distinguish. Uh, you can think of three levels of activity: urban, suburban, and rural. Uh, box stores don't really work in an urban environment. You don't really find big box stores in downtown no. Toronto. So you find some malls, dedicated malls like the Eaton Center, and then you find housing developments or commercial developments that have retail on the first level, or in the case of Toronto, even in that thing they call the path, that underground mm-hmm. area that connects up. Um, the big box stores here in Hamilton are clearly very suburban, and for the moment, suburbs remain a hub of growth. We, we have talked for many, many years of people giving up their big houses in the suburbs and taking the downtown, buying the condos, and we've actually seen some condo development here in Hamilton, but there have been more condos announced than have actually ever been built, and a number of the condo projects are, for lack of a better term, floundering. Uh, you can think of the Connolly, for instance, that was going to go behind the, the church on James Street mm. and his problems. But there were other condos over time. Uh, Harry Stinson was going to build one on the site of a former Shell gas station. That was going to be a condo slash hotel. That didn't happen. So it's been slow and steady. Therefore, I think at least for the next 10 to 15 years, big box stores aren't going to go anywhere. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.